0: Welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults will explore some of my favorite moments from North American and European trans history. I love history because it's my favorite kind of gossip, scandalous, sensational, and most importantly of all, not about me, directly anyways. One of the major issues with documenting queer and trans life is the problem of categorization. Do we categorize people according to the words they use to describe themselves? Or by the modern categories to which their lives most closely correspond? What about those people who existed before there was widely available terminology to describe them? These are questions I've posed in several previous episodes of One for the Vaults. The truth is that the farther back you look at these identity categories, the more they tend to break down, merge, and eventually lose total definition. Is an 18th century Molly a gay man, a trans woman, sometimes one, sometimes the other, both at the same time, or neither? It all depends on what agenda, conscious or subconscious, you bring to it. In this episode, we have to ask a deeper question. How do we reevaluate what we think we know when we discover that the story it is based on isn't what we thought it was? The subject of this week's episode was during and after their life, used as the prototype of the mannish lesbian by nascent sexologists of the 19th century, forming the core of what progressive people believed lesbians to be well into the 20th century. Simone de Beauvoir based her comments on lesbians in her groundbreaking feminist text, The Second Sex, on this person's life story. Their story has had far-reaching impacts on the formation of modern lesbian identity, but when we look back at their life today, we would be hard-pressed to see a lesbian at all. Join us as OFTV takes a look at the life of Count Sandor Vey, early lesbian, proto-trans man, novelist, and aristocrat. Sandor Vey was born into an eccentric family, is putting it lightly. Sometimes a trans person might be the least odd member of a family, perhaps especially so if the family is an aristocratic one. In his later case study of Vey, sexologist Richard von Kraft Ebbing wrote that though Vey's family had been grand nobility in Hungary, Vey's maternal grandmother had had four sisters, each stranger than the last. The first was a somnambulist, a sleepwalker, and had been bedridden for 17 years because of an hysterical illness she'd dreamed up. The next great-aunt spent seven years in bed, though she sensibly took breaks to host balls. A third great aunt believed that a peculiar table in her house was cursed. When any item was put on it, she would shriek, bewitched, bewitched, snatch the item and hurl it and herself into a room she referred to as the black chamber, for which only she owned a key. Upon her death, it was found filled with a random assortment of such items, including money the fourth and final great-aunt of Sandor Vey, suddenly refused to leave her room, staying inside for two full years without bathing or combing her hair. At the end of this period, for reasons Kraft-Ebbing leaves unexplained, she returned to her normal life. So when Sandor Vey was born Sarlteve on December 6th, 1859, eccentricity was already a long-established tradition for the Vey family. His father, Laszlo Vey, was the crown keeper of the Joseph Archduke. According to Kraft-Ebbing, who based his case study on a report by a Dr. Bernbacher without ever having met Vey, Sander's mother was just as odd as his litany of great-aunts. His mother, who had a nervous constitution, reportedly could not bear the light of the moon. Some of this eccentricity on the maternal side is due to the family's fanatical devotion to spiritualism. Spiritualism, which is remembered in popular culture today through seances and Ouija boards, had swept the Western world through the 19th century. Spiritualists believe that contact with the dead could be achieved through spiritual investigation in the form of seances, table wrapping, psychometry, and other means. Though nominally Christian, spiritualism considered itself more aligned with the growing interest Victorians had in the sciences. If your ancestors lived in Europe, North America, South America, or the Caribbean during the 19th century, they almost definitely practiced spiritualism or knew people who did. It was incredibly popular. It had many famous devotees, including Sherlock Holmes creator Arthur Conan Doyle. Mary Todd Lincoln even held a spiritualist seance in the White House, attended by none other than Abraham Lincoln himself. That said, Vay's paternal side was no less peculiar. Kraft-Ebbing notes that two members of Vay's paternal side had shot themselves. Sondor's father made the strange decision to raise him as a boy and to raise Sondor's younger brother, Peter, as a girl. These were not the only bizarre decision that Sandor's father Laszlo made. Though he'd held quite a prestigious position, his wanton spending of over a million and a half dollars caused him to lose his job. Thus began the slow economic decline of this titled aristocratic family. Kraft-Ebbing explains that Sandor was encouraged to hunt, to ride, and to drive. Misgendering Sandor, he writes, quote, She received a careful upbringing. She took journeys with her father, of course, always as a young man. Sandor's father's downward economic mobility prompted him to send Sandor to live with his maternal grandmother in Dresden at the age of 12. At first, his grandmother allowed Sandor to continue living as a boy, but when it became obvious that this was not simply masculine play, his grandmother had him committed to an institute. In the asylum, Sandor was forced to wear women's clothing for the first time in his life, a situation that did not thrill Sandor. Sandor had an affair with a thirteen year old English girl to whom he presented himself as a boy, and the two ran away together. Sándor was eventually returned to his mother's care, who simply threw up her hands and let Sándor return to living as a boy. According to Kraft-Ebbing, from then on he had at least one affair with a girl per year. kraft Ebbing writes, "...she soon became independent, went to cafes, even to places of ill repute, and she boasted one day that in a brothel she had had a girl sitting on each knee. She was often drunk, liked men's sports. She was a very skillful fencer. She was attracted to actresses or other single, possibly not quite young women." He notes that Sondor had never felt attraction towards men, and, in fact, had felt a growing dislike of men over the years. He quotes Sondor as saying, quote, I preferred to go to women's company with ugly or unsightly men so that they didn't overshadow me. If I noticed that any of the men awakened the sympathies of the ladies, I felt jealous. I preferred ladies who were bright and pretty. I could not endure them if they were fat or much inclined toward men. I like if a woman's passion manifests itself from behind a bewitching cover of a poetic veil. I find indecency disgusting in women. Not exactly progressive views on women, but, you know, it was the late 19th century. At age 23, Sándor's carousing ways sent him courting an actress named Mari Hegesi in the Hungarian town of Eger. It's unclear if she reciprocated Sándor's feelings, but regardless, Sándor ended up in a duel to defend her honor against some slight. The romance didn't last long after that. None of his romances did. They did, however, inspire great passion in the hearts of the women he courted. One, identified only as Miss D by Kraft Ebbing, even threatened to shoot Sándor should he be unfaithful to her. Evidently, this was an empty threat. Here's an account from 1882, from the later memoirs of the actor Izo Gionghi. Quote, He smoked like a chimney, and chatted and behaved like an enfant terrible. Well, as a boy from Miskels, I heard that the old Count Vey was eccentric, dressing his daughter in boys' clothes and the boy in girls. But that this countess is now inviting me to carouse in Fehervar, I didn't dare to dream about. And he didn't back down. To caroze. Where? In a nightclub. Where one finds women. My eyes goggled. This young lad seated the girls in his lap. When not proving quite the ladies' man, Sandor traveled extensively and worked as a journalist under a series of male pseudonyms. He also wrote poetry and short stories, but it was the journalism that paid. He had been sent to study at universities in Budapest, Leipzig, Berlin, and Dresden. In the early 1880s, he covered the notorious Tzeslar affair, a blood libel trial in which Jews were baselessly accused of the ritual murder of a young Christian girl. The event set off a wave of anti Semitism in Hungary that still has reverberations to this day with the young girl's grave serving as a site of anti-Semitic pilgrimage. Sandor avoided his relatives in order to maintain his lifestyle as a man. His younger brother, whom you'll remember was raised as a girl, had ceased living as a girl upon entering high school at age 15 and went on to become an abbot, a missionary, and also a travel writer. Sondor's decision to remain steadfast in his male identity put him at odds with the rest of his family, though one is hard-pressed to understand why, given that it was his father who originally raised him as a boy. But, you know, sis, people gonna cis. In 1883, he met Emma Ezeki, another actress. This one was the daughter of a local judge, Emma was 10 years his senior, but the two fell in love quickly and decided to elope. They were married by a priest and lived together for three years in Budapest. This would end up being the longest-lasting relationship of Sandor's life. The actor Izo Gyöngyi writes in his memoirs of meeting Sandor and his wife again around this time. He writes, quote, I went to the town in order to collect subscriptions. As I was walking around, whom did I notice in a gateway? A little funny figure like Baron Bizet, Turkish bathrobe, slippers, fez, chibuk in his mouth. He calls to me, Hello, my countrymen. By gosh, it's Sarolta, that is Sandor Come, buddy, I want to introduce you to my wife. And taking me by the arm, he drags me into the house. The wife is there indeed, in a modest, small apartment. I recognize her. She's an actress. I played with her at lazi I'm staring in amazement. They live very modestly, but the host is hospitable. He wants to entertain me and sends for some beer and luncheon. Meanwhile, I'm left alone with my colleague and make her confess how the marriage is going. The old acquaintance gets her to speak confidentially. And she tells me that she is happy and satisfied in every sense. But Sondor's womanizing ways could not be tamed for long. His eyes eventually began to wander. In the summer of 1887, Sandor met a 26-year-old schoolmistress named Mari Engelhardt. Sondor, ever the poet, believed their meeting was fate. So, of course, he ran out on his wife. His wife, Emma, was not about to let that happen— and the two entered into a bitter divorce, with Emma continuing to refer to herself as the divorced Countess Vey for the rest of her life. (laughs) ¶¶ Sándor's mother and cousin opposed his new relationship with Mari, but despite this, the two wrote to each other devotedly over the following winter. He went to visit her in April 1888, and by May of the following year, the two had an outdoor wedding in Hungary with a false priest, and Sándor forged a marriage certificate for them, identifying himself as male. This is where things began to go wrong for him. At first, the two lived together in newlywed bliss. Sándor passed, and no one in Mari's family suspected a thing despite his short stature. The father-in-law slowly began to suspect something was off, though. Sándor would later explain that he used handkerchiefs or gloves to pack, imitating an impressive bulge in his pants. But when riding together, the father-in-law had noticed what appeared to be a large erection in Sándor's trousers— Sondor tried to explain it away by saying he had to wear a suspensory bandage while riding. But it would later become clear that this bandage was actually a harness that he used to strap on what Kraft Ebbing refers to as a priapus. Meanwhile, the staff of the hotel at which the married couple lived gossiped about Sondor's gender when they discovered menstrual blood in his sheets. He tried to explain it away as hemorrhoidal blood, and though he requested regular shaving services, it was noted that there was never any beard hair to shave. The hotel staff would later claim they had decided to end their speculation by peeping through a keyhole once when Sondor was taking a bath. It seems that his wife Mari was unaware of Sandor's assigned sex, writing in one letter about how, though she was not inclined towards children generally, she would be so delighted to have one with her, Sandy. Though some had their suspicions, all might have continued on in happiness if Sandor hadn't tried to get money from Mari's father. Sandor, like his father, was terrible with money and was by this time in massive debt. He turned to Mari's father, asking to borrow $800 for the deposit for a secretarial job that, it turned out, didn't exist. Sandor's father went to the police and had Sandor arrested. In prison, his assigned sex was discovered, of course, which upended what had seemed like a simple case of fraud. While awaiting trial, Sonder wrote endlessly to his beloved, though he must have known that his letters would never reach her. His writing is so florid that it's embarrassing to read, but here's a short selection. Quote, thy dear sweet voice, the voice whose tone perchance would raise me from the dead That has been for me like the warm breath of paradise. Thy presence alone were enough to alleviate my mental and moral anguish. It was a magnetic stream. It was a peculiar power, your being exercised over mine, which I cannot quite define. And therefore, I cling to that ever-true definition, I love you because I love you. In the night of sorrow, I had but one star, the star of Mari's love that star has lost its light now there remains but its shimmer the sweet sad memory which even lights with its soft ray the deepening night of death a ray of hope the hungarian daily newspapers covered the case with great excitement leading the rest of europe's papers to follow suit it was a major scandal not only because he was trans, but also because he was an aristocrat. The Times wrote, in January 1890, quote, A lady of masculine appearance, the Countess Sorrel to Vey, took to disguising herself some time ago as a man and, under the name of Count Vey, contracted marriage with a young girl. She has just undergone a preliminary examination before the magistrates of Clagenford But medical certificates, having declared her to be afflicted with moral insanity, she has been relegated to an asylum. The story reached as far away as America, with a headline in the Salem Daily News in Ohio reading, quote, singular career of the daughter of an Austrian count, startling eccentricities of a girl who objects to being a woman, her extravagance and dissipation, the talk of two kingdoms. Sondor was sent to an asylum, where the court's medical expert, a Dr. Birnbacher, examined him. The notes from this examination would be what Kraft-Ebbing later used to write about the case in his magnum opus, Psychopathia Sexualis. Psychopathia Sexualis is one of the earliest works on the psychology of homosexuality. It synthesized several earlier 19th century theories of homosexuality, and for the first time added in a disease model which Kraft-Ebbing used to argue that homosexuality was caused by hereditary mental degeneracy. So, when people say that queer and trans people are mentally ill, they are unknowingly referencing Kraft-Ebbing. Still, the book's extensive use of case studies makes it a fascinating historical document. Sondor's case of what the book calls, quote, gynandry, The reversal of the effeminacy referred to as androgyny formed the basis of sexology's approach to lesbians, particularly butches. Sondor, however, never described himself as a woman, in fact abhorred all reference to his assigned sex and claimed to have never allowed anyone to touch his genitals, both because he experienced what we would now call dysphoria and because it would reveal that he was trans he expressed desire for women who saw him as a man. Sandor was so dysphoric and modest that he would make the female inmate he shared a cell with turn to face the window whenever he needed to use the toilet or change his clothing. By today's standards, it seems clear that Sandor was a trans man. In one of his letters while he was in prison, Sandor wrote in his own defense, Gentlemen, You, learned in the law, psychologists and pathologists, do me justice. Love led me to take the step I took. All my deeds were conditioned by it. God put it in my heart. If he created me so and not otherwise, am I then guilty? Or is it the eternal, incomprehensible way of fate? I relied on God, that one day my emancipation would come. For my thought was only love itself which is the foundation, the guiding principle of his teaching and his kingdom. O God, thou all-pitying, almighty one, thou seest my distress, thou knowest how I suffer, incline thyself to me, extend thy helping hand to me, deserted by all the world. Only God is just. How beautifully does Victor Hugo describe this in his Légion du ciel, How sad do Mendelssohn's words sound to me. Nightly in dreams I see thee. Perhaps due to the curious circumstances, or more likely due to the Count's station, Sandor was acquitted and permitted to return to life as a man. But he was distraught at the loss of his wife Mari, who had turned against him upon the revelation of his assigned sex. He went on to continue his work as a writer and journalist, but things were never quite the same. He attempted to leave writing behind and become a coffee merchant, but the business went under, no doubt thanks to his poor financial management skills, and he returned to writing. By the turn of the 20th century, he was writing friends, quote, I'm writing rarely now. Since last year I've been in poor health, the little acknowledgement allowance, and little benevolence from the guildsmen have unfortunately made me tired of the state of Hungarian literary men. He did maintain a lively correspondence, however, with René Erdos, an actress turned writer who became famous for her sexually provocative poems and later for her religious novels. He published a total of 18 novels in Hungary. Though, unfortunately, they have not been translated into English. During World War I, Sándor traveled to Switzerland, where he became gravely ill with pneumonia. He was taken to a sanatorium in Lugano, where he died on May 23, 1918. Several newspapers ran obituaries covering his death. In one they wrote, quote, We haven't heard about him for a long time, and now our heart sinks, reading the sad message of the Lugano telegram about the passing of a strange man, an interesting writer, a faithful friend, and an infinitely refined, gentle, and sensitive soul. He was the George Sand of Hungarian literature. His masculine bents and some pathological aberrations, mentioned also by Kraft Ebbing, inspired him to take a male name and male clothing. In his writings, however, there was nothing unnatural. Another journal called him a daydreaming, eloquent, and romantic writer. The newspaper Bupeshti Hirlop wrote of his, quote, "...poetic, soft-spoken, lavender-smelling writings on vanished times. He lived and behaved as a man. His life was that of a Hossverus. He was wandering pointlessly in a discord with himself and the world." He had desires, but never had hopes. As I have discussed, despite his clear identity as a man, Sandor's story would go on to influence decades of psychological and later feminist writings on lesbianism. His case appears not only in Kraft-Ebbing's work, but also in the work of British psychologist Havelock Ellis, as well as much later in Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex. In the 1980s and 1990s, his story became part of lesbian history. Of course, it's hard to say how Sondor may have chosen to identify himself had he had access to words like lesbian and trans while he was alive. But what we know for certain was that he felt firm in his identity as a man, lived as a man through his entire life, dated as a man, wrote about himself as a man, and died as a man. Thanks for listening to this episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is now recorded in London, England. Check out the show notes for all the sources I used. If you like the show, please subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Play. And if you'd like to contribute to the making of future episodes, please consider donating to my Patreon at patreon.com/oftv. Patrons who donate five dollars or more per month get access to special bonus mini episodes each month, as well as the archive of all previous bonus episodes. You can also tweet at me at MorganMPage on Twitter. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night.